Okay, quick question before we get started today. Can you name a true triple threat musician? I'm talking about someone who brings it, who kills it in at least three areas of music. Well, I've got one for you today on the show, Lyle Workman. As a lead guitar player, Lyle has played with such headliners as Sting, Todd Rundgren, Frank Black, Jellyfish, Beck, Bourgeois Tag, Sarah McLaughlin. The list goes on. On the other hand, Lyle is also a monster, super in-demand composer. You've certainly heard his music before because you've certainly seen some of these movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Superbad, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Get Him to the Greek, the HBO show Crashing. Lyle's music is everywhere. But thirdly, Lyle is an incredible solo artist. And thanks to your friends at Ernie Ball, who have just released the new VP Junior Tuner pedal, it's a super cool volume pedal and tuner in one. You got to check it out at ernieball.com. I'm serious. It's really cool. We get to hear some unobtainium. That's right. This ain't out anywhere. But Lyle, bless his generous heart, is going to let us listen to some previews of his fully mixed and mastered album, Uncommon Measures. I'm not even sure if there's a release date yet. I mean, here's a little sample. It's just so wow. Close your eyes. Listen. Thank you, Ernie Ball, for making this happen. It's No Guitar Is Safe, episode 110. No Guitar Is Safe. My name is still Jude Gold. Thanks for listening. Super appreciate it. I got another quick question for you. Think back. Was there ever a time in your life when you helped someone else get a killer gig? Like, you know, you played Matchmaker and you sent someone down to an audition or something and it just worked out perfectly. I can think of a couple times like, okay, back in the mid-90s, I'm at college in Berkeley, California, UC Berkeley, music department. I'm playing with various cats, including this drummer named Brad Hargraves. Great player. Teachers love him, but most of all, I love him because he just swings and he can play any style and he's super chill, super musical. Well, my other friend from a totally alternate world, the local music scene from high school, the San Francisco scene, he's in a band with serious label interest. They're getting courted. It's called Third Eye Blind. That friend, of course, is Kevin Cadigan. You might have heard that episode of this show. And Kevin's like, man, I think we need a full-time drummer. Do you know anybody? Well, I sent Brad down to audition and Brad Hargraves crushed it. Within that year, I think they got a $1.5 million offer that they accepted from Electra Records for their debut record. And Brad has been in the band ever since. That's like 25 years. Well, another time that I remember getting that good feeling of helping somebody out was in 2009. I had just started as the chair of the guitar program at Musicians Institute, a.k.a. GIT, when I get a call from the great Lyle Workman. Holy shit, Lyle Workman's calling And he's like, hey, man, 
check it out. I've got a great opportunity for a guitar player, but I don't really want to do a whole cattle call Hollywood audition craziness thing. Would you check with your staff at GIT and see if anybody would like to be in this new movie starring Russell Brand? He's playing a crazy rock and roll singer. It's called Get Him to the Greek, and he needs the lead guitar player in all of the live performance scenes, someone who can play the music perfectly, even if he's not on the actual recording, but play the parts realistically and just fit the bill immediately. I thought, man, Lenny Weidgren is your man. But I put it out to the whole staff. Surprisingly, I only got five submissions. I sent their photos to Lyle. He already knew they could play because they're teaching at GIT. And I'm not sure how many he called, but sure enough, Lenny Weigren, aka Lenny J, killed it. He was the perfect guy for the gig. And he got to be all up in that movie playing in several of the live scenes, including the big pyro extravaganza at the Greek theater at the end. They even flew him to New York for like the uh, morning show scene in Times Square put him up in a fat hotel. But best of all, I mean, that was 10 years ago. I just happened to be talking to Lenny the other day about that whole thing. And he was like, you know what, man? I still get a nice royalty check every year for being in that movie. I'm like, fuck yeah. Pardon my French. Anyway, Lyle is a great cat. That's when I first met him, even if it was just on the phone. So yeah, today's show is brought to you by Ernie Ball and the new VP Junior tuner pedal. They are so excited to announce that this highly anticipated pedal is here. It's the perfect combination two-in-one pedal offering precise volume control with an enhanced definition digital tuner right on the face of the pedal. It really looks cool. Like I told you, it was the hit of the NAM show this year, back when people were allowed to hang out in proximity to each other. Everyone was talking about it. The pedal features a fast and accurate chromatic tuner with a graphic volume display that is visually attractive, easy to operate. The large display automatically switches between tuner and volume modes depending on the signal level, allowing the player to tune at a minimal volume. And you can configure it different ways, such as always on, so the tuner is always on that display. But you can, you can do that by double tapping the touch screen and making adjustments. The tuner can be calibrated to a variety of ideal reference pitches, and its compact, rugged design consists of aluminum housing and features a stronger, more durable PVC-coated Kevlar cord, ensuring consistent tension throughout the sweep of your foot. And these things look great and are available in silver, red, white, and black. Visit ErnieBall.com to learn more. That's ErnieBall.com. Thank you, Ernie Ball. So, yes, we are going to have an epic hang with Lyle Workman right now. little roadmap for you. We're going to dive into his new album right away and how he recorded this amazing thing with orchestra at Abbey Road Studios and how he tracked all his guitars. And then, of course, you know, now that we're all locked down and working from home, at least for a while, I figure I'm not the only one who wonders, man, what does it take to really get established writing and composing and recording, producing for film and for television. So we're going to go into that realm with Lyle. And then, of course, I got to ask him about his crazy gigs, playing for kajillions of people with Sting and all the other crazy shows that he has played with other artists and studio sessions. And this episode is actually, I'm in my studio and he is in his studio. And we're both recording straight into Pro Tools. Although occasionally there's a little iPhone speaker thing where you kind of hear a little chirps coming back and forth. It's an anomaly. 
Sorry about that, but you know, it's how it goes, man. Nothing stops the podcast. We'll get back to in-person rock out playing interviews like really soon. I think the next one will be a real playing interview for you, but just the current state of things, man. You know, I just got off a few planes and stuff and I didn't want to just traipse into Lyle's house. Who knows? Just going to give it a couple of days here and we're going to see if staying at home can flatten the curve and keep the hospitals from getting overwhelmed. So yeah, guitar in the time of coronavirus. What do you think? It's a trippy time indeed. Driving down the streets of LA when there's hardly any cars. Man, that's like a Twilight Zone episode for you right there. That's something I never thought I would see. I hope you all are staying healthy, surrounded by food and guitars and friends, but not too close. Let's go hang out with Lyle Workman, man. Get some inspiration. Keep on tracking, y'all. Keep it alive to you, 95. Okay, and when we get started, I've just asked Lyle, what would the most surprising thing be to a musician, maybe an experienced musician, who wants to branch out into composition for film and television? Maybe about the business or something. What would be an unexpected aspect of that kind of work that you don't really know about until you get there? Maybe one of the most surprising elements is the amount of committee that it, that it is, the process yeah. of making music for film. It's very rarely a, a situation where you write your music and you hand it in, and that's it. You know, you you're you're fulfilling someone else's vision. So you can get all kinds of uh, feedback and direction about your music that. Uh, Either you can be okay with, or sometimes you're not okay with it in cases where you're working with people that are not very music savvy and don't really know how to convey what they want. And so sometimes you, it's a, a very much a job of translation, figuring out how to translate what people tell you, because sometimes they tell you things that you know are wrong. But you have to accommodate people, you know, and you have to be good about that. Yeah, you're, ba- you're providing a service is what it is. It's a service-oriented business. And uh, I think for people that are artists, that come from being artists and doing records and they're uh, making their own music, when they go over to doing films, I think that's a bit of a shock. It's uh, it's just different. It's a different scenario you have to, an- you have to answer, answer to someone. For me, it's not really a problem because I've always been a guy in the bands, you know, serving a, a purpose beyond myself whether it be in a band or being a sideman or being uh, doing session work or touring. It's always been for other people, so that that really wasn't difficult for me. Does it take a certain personality type to uh, deal with all of that committee? Yeah, I think so. It, de- it definitely does. Yeah, you have to be okay with it and at peace with it. And, you know, it's their, it's their, it's their vision that, that you have to help them get to. And along the way, there can be... A, a huge degree of creative satisfaction to the other to the opposite end to where you're not that you're painted into a bit of a corner that you're not particularly uh, in line with but at the end of the day if they're happy and it gives them what they need that's the that's the role that's your role right yeah because there's other 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 parts of it the other opportunities that that are surprising on the other end of things on the on the very good side such as well for me particularly you know, i i never had a chance to work with orchestras until i started doing movies 
And so having that experience, uh, having those opportunities to write orchestral music and have it funded, you know, 75 people playing your music was not going to happen on my own. You know, uh, yeah. or wasn't appearing to have to be my uh, my path, but through through the movies, I had those opportunities, and and it was uh, you know it definitely uh, expanded my 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 abilities as a musician, and so I'm really grateful for those those kinds of things that that the movies have provided. Yeah. Well, the orchestra is such a huge part of your new record, so tell us when did you first work with an orchestra and. What were your nerves like before your first orchestral session? Did you conduct? Did you have someone else conduct? Were you worried about the parts being in the right ranges? Or Well, no. Okay, so I'll take that uh, one by one. Um, the first orchestral session, well, actually, the very first time I wrote something for people to play, string players in particular, so it, I was in a band called Bourgeois Tag in the 80s, oh, yeah. and we had a single called I Don't Mind It All, and it had a string quartet. And so I, along with Brent Bourgeois, uh, who was the you know one of the leaders of the band, we wrote the song together, and then we wrote the string arrangement. So it was my first time, and you know it was a quartet, so it was a lot easier to to knock out. But at the same time, there's less people playing, but every part very integral to you know it has to be right. You can't re- rely on 28 people playing the same note for thickness. You know, it's a, there's a there's a different kind of skill to that. Yeah. But uh, and that was a record that Todd Rundgren produced. But after that, it was a much longer time until I was in front of orchestral musicians. Uh, I think there was a little bit of it in um, a little bit of it in Superbad. There was a, we had a small orchestra for that. You know, the the, the process of learning and to do it is. Is very helpful by by the technology, in that sample libraries will map out the range of each instrument, so you know how far to go, and you start to learn the sweet spot of where things sound best. So you can you can learn a lot that way just by goofing around with sample libraries. That's what I started doing, and interestingly, I took an orchestration class when I first moved down to L.A. This was around 1997. This is before I had any movie prospects. I just wanted to learn how to do it because I was always interested in that sound and how that instrumentation and sound was featured in pop music and in you know jazz, like with Gil Evans and Miles Davis and uh, classical music and, and the Beatles. You know that's probably the biggest one to, to begin with, is George Martin's uh, arrangements. So I just wanted to do it. So I took this great orchest- orchestration class at UCLA. And learned a bunch from that. That's killer. So I can't remember the other parts of your question. Uh, what was the second part or the third part? Well, that's interesting. I was asking if you know, like, what your first session with an orchestra was like, and did you conduct it? Or okay, no, I I have not conducted yet. Uh, I think I've gotten used to the being able to be in the control room. I like being in the control room because you can hear out. The, the the full recording in 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 uh, in the way it's going to really t- really sound at the end of the day and make I think better informed uh, feedback to the orchestra in terms of balances and dyma- dynamics and when you're conducting it's you know you're you're it's another performance you know you're conducting and you're conveying all this other stuff and I just I just had I started out this way and I just never got into conducting because I I just like the way it sounds in the control room and plus I've got someone to do it for me and oftentimes it's my orchestrator and he's a great conductor awesome. and he has these relationships with these with all these musicians because he's done 
you know, I can get a guy that's he's done it a hundred times, or I get a, a guy that's done it ten times. You know, that would be me, or or has wanted to yeah. do small versions of that. So I, I tend to to go with the the most experienced people in the field, pretty much all around when I'm doing things. <laughs> that's my way to way to operate and what is the like on your new record you have so many songs with huge rock drums and guitar and bass how much of that was live with an orchestra or how more were the all the orchestrations added later and what's the challenge of blending the two worlds all the band we'll just call it the band stuff so everything ex- except orchestra we'll call band and then in this case it's guitar bass drums and keyboards so that was all recorded beforehand so it was just the orchestra at the very end which is really right. the way they do it in movies too if it's a hybrid type of score that's got the same sort of instrumentation, the very last thing you do is you, you record the orchestra and then it, then it goes to mix and then you're done. So for this new record, you found, as a Beatles fan, what, how did you end up in Abbey Road? And I've been there myself. I got, was very lucky to get a tour. What's it like for you walking into that, those rooms? And were you in like the big orchestral room, even though we know the Beatles used... Studio B, was it? Studio 2 is the, is the Beatles room, yeah. It's a smaller room, but it's perfect for rock bands, but... Yeah, it's still we, pretty big, we, right? You know, you've seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were at Studio 1, so that's the bigger room. Beatles Dead, Day in a Life there, and a few other things. But it was I had never been there, so it was it was doubly exciting. And the the way we got there is after working on this music, and, and this is for, the, for this record, uh, Uncommon Measures, it's called. It's coming out. It was some pretty heady material and some pretty hairy lines here and there. And yeah. I just, you know, the, the thing about about string orchestras or, or orchestras in general, it's it takes a, a long time for a player to play even in tune, you know, <laughs> when it comes to string instruments particularly. And then the reading ability, you know, you just really want experience. And if you have complicated material, it's, it's, you just require the best people to play it. And so, in my mind, and also in the mind of my orchestrator, his name is John Ashton Thomas, he lives in between Abbey Road and Air Studios, and so he works there every week. So he's on, you know, he just gets on his bike and rides either to one or the other. Our choices were L.A. or, or, um, or Abbey Road, London. Could have been at Air, but we, we decided Abbey Road was the, was the right place for this material. So that was it. It was just purely based on where can we get, where can we get the best orchestra and uh, take the least amount of time to get it because it's very expensive. Yeah. You so this, <laughs> where did this budget come from? My or, pocket. So this is a true labor of love, but yeah, yeah. I just I, I I funded the whole thing myself. I mean, that's another thing the movies have helped <laughs> is uh, my lifestyle. <clears throat> so we I, we had to. I just I just wanted to do it, and I said, let's go for it. And the oh, missus was was fine with it, and. Uh, you know, L.A. would have been great, too. It's just with all the union parameters, it would just have made it, uh, it was just more than I could afford. Yeah, well, I feel you there. L.A., New York, expensive towns. But quite a triumph, everything that you've got on all these songs. It, it sounds like there's orchestra in just about every song. I could be. Yeah, uh, there's, uh, out, of, out of nine songs, seven of, them, seven of them have the orchestra. Let's look at the first track, North Star. I mean, this is intense, the way it starts off in one vein. And by the end, it's like Stravinsky and everything. There's some really cool orchestral moments. 
The thing that's kind of cool about the music that I write for myself is I never, I never, I never think of a concept ahead of time and stick to that concept. I, I, I just let things flow naturally, and whatever it becomes, it comes. It becomes because I, I feel that the muse is way more smarter <laughs> than than I am, than I can conceive of. So I, I tend to just mess around on the guitar and and just come up with a chord progression or a melody with a progression. And I, I'll either do it on on guitar or on keyboards, and I'll just start laying it down to a click track. It's very simple. And it's just really a, a process of putting a brick on another brick and building it that way, starting with the foundation. And I never know where it's going. I never know. I, I always get surprised myself when things kind of take a, a certain turn. Or I, I, I conceive of this stuff sort of one by one. You know, usually if you're writing a pop song, you know you've got your bridge and your, you got your, sorry, you got your verse and you've got your chorus and then a verse and a, and a chorus and then a bridge and a chorus out. So you you need to sort of, sort of map that out ahead of time. Generally, yeah. you, you you don't write you put down generally as far as I know. Most people don't yeah. just record a, a a verse and then because everything's kind of interdependent. On, well, the chorus depends on the bridge is going to depend on all this stuff. But for me, it's 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 not that way at all. I I just start with a couple chords, maybe a small chord progression, and then then I say to myself, well, where do I go now? And I I never restrict it. So it could be uh, it could change stylistically. It could change. Uh, in terms of the textures and the instrumentation, that's c completely up for grabs. And, and that's why these, some of these tracks are seven, eight, nine, ten minutes long and, and completely different from where they started. Yeah, it's kind of a through-composed approach. Yes, exactly. That's a very... You're not locked into an A-A-B-A form or first chorus, first chorus, bridge. Yeah, indeed. And you get so many great guitar moments in here, too. Well, let me call up this one little you know there's there's like almost like a little holdsworthian moment when you just burst in with the guitars when i first heard that i was like is alan holdsworth back from the dead <laughs> it's a really cool well, what inspires that a little line like that? The music, just the music. I mean, it's, it's that's simply what it is. I'm just reacting to what I laid down as that structure, that repeating pattern. The thing about the soloing, you know, particularly, is it, it, it's all afterthoughts. Though that's the very last thing I think about. Um, it's the sort of the least focused part of the work. You know, it, 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 invariably I'll come up with a section and then at the okay, I, I guess this is a good part, a good time for a little solo. And sometimes it's a little solo, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's quite extended. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm just responding to whatever I whatever I got down in there stylistically. Before I forget, what sort of platform are you using? Because you're putting together all these elements of band elements, as we discussed, and also you're writing out this music using sample libraries. Are you using Logic to control all this, or what's your main platform? Or what would you, what did what would you recommend for someone who wants to get into this? Well, I use Pro Tools. I'm not sure I would recommend Pro Tools, uh, but let me just say, uh, cl clarify what I mean. I'm a, I'm an audio guy, so I've started with tape recorders when I was a kid. You know, a little kid with reel to reel to four tracks and Porta Studios and ADAS and DA. You know, and so it's all been audio recording. Then after that became oh well keyboards I'm gonna get a MIDI keyboard and see what I can do with it so I'm not I I didn't start the other way around with with keyboards yeah. keyboards came later 
But for people starting now, uh, you know, logic is great. Pro, Pro Tools is, is great. I mean, I, I love it. Um, I guess what I'm asking, do you use Pro Tools for the MIDI portion when you're... I use it for everything. The, the MIDI, it took them a while to sort of catch up. But I think now it's, it's, it's really, really good. And I don't really know what I'm missing. Uh, you know, ignorance is bliss, yeah. kind of thing, because there's certain aspects that are, I know that uh, that are not available on Pro Tools. This is what other people tell me. But everything I've ever needed to do, I've done it. I've done every all the scores on Pro Tools. I've, I've mocked everything up. I did all the the keyboard orchestral mock mockups in, within Pro Tools, and so it's, the, it works fine for me. The notation as well, or yeah, this well, it, you, you you could export it to Sibelius and tweak it. Oh yeah, so that's it's 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 great. It's great for me. I love this moment where all the guitar harmonies come in. Like again, we're we start in one place at the beginning of the song, North Star, and at the end, it's just climactic, epic, and you have oh, yeah. these beautiful, like around the eight-minute mark, these beautiful double, triple guitars happening, moving with the harmony. Well, that's a, a direct ode to Brian May, of course. You know, there's, there's, yeah, the, the music really has is infused with my influences. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. But yeah, it's you learn from the people before you and the people you love and respect. And for sure, the the harm the harm the harmony guitars always is is a, is a nod to the master. Yeah, well, that's cool. That's that is a great master to pay a nod to. Um, you have a very clear tone on on those harmonies. Do you remember what kind of maybe what your signal chain was for the solos on this song, or and or the harmony guitars? It's really not too distorted, you know. It's like right yeah. In there. Okay, so I got to think back about that one. Um, or what's a typical setup you might use for that? Well, I don't really have a typical thing. You know, I, I'm always kind of moving things around, but I, I could tell you staples of things I use frequently. Uh, I have a 1969 Marshall Super Super Bass that's that was modified in the 80s, in the early 80s, and I've had it ever since. And uh, it's an amazing sounding amp. Uh, it's got pool gain and pool boost. You know, it's it's been heavily modified, but uh, I've always wanted one of those. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great amp. So do you record it with a microphone or what? Yeah, I record it with a microphone in my studio. I've got uh, a cabinet, a four twelve cabinet, and I've got you know two twelve AC thirty cabinet there, and I've got a couple Fender combo amps out there. But as of late, I have incorporated more digital stuff. You know, I've got I've got an Axe FX, which is really great. And sometimes you want to have a combination of things just to have a yeah. just, just so everything doesn't sound the same. And I may have I think on North Star it's it's possible. I, I should have jotted all this stuff down for situations just like this. But I may use oh, the right. Axe Effects for those harmony guitars. Right, right. Into that track. And when you run the Axe Effects, do you just use just the dry tones and add your own delays and stuff later, or do you use the effects on board? The axe effects. I usually go with a dry sound because I want to play with the amount of ambience afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Although they're plenty good in in that box. I also have Can an Ox give... box too, the UA Universal Audio. Yeah, yeah. Which is unbelievable. For the, those who don't know, that's for running a real head straight into your computer without a cabinet, and they do it really well. Our yeah. buddy James Santiago involved in that one. Oh yeah, yeah. So that that's been great, and I, I use that also on a few things throughout the record. Just. Um, yeah, that, yeah, it's uh, a variety of stuff. I've got a, a, another amp I really like a lot. It's a Comet. I'm looking at it to my right. It's a Comet Concord head. 
It's a sixty watt yeah. head. It's it's uh, it's it was designed by Ken Fisher from Trainwreck. Yeah, and it's a it's just a, it has no master volume, but from what I understand, it's front end and back end distortion. Because as we know, non master volume amps, you just turn them up and you're you're, you're getting back end distortion as you would an AC thirty or you know a cranked up Fender amp or. You know something like that, or an old plexi amp. There's, there's real no. Pre, you don't have preamp distortion. I mean, maybe a little. Maybe it's both. Yeah, like you're getting those power tubes to grind. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've always liked that sound best. You know, for for distortion, I like, I like what that. You know, it does something to the speakers. Like the speaker actually goes. You know, there's there's more movement yeah. in the coil, and uh, you, you know, it's just it's it just um, for live particularly, it, it's you can seem to hear it better. When the speakers right. move in that kind of air, but so I have that that I use. I've used that. I have a '72 Marshall, also non-master volume. So I've used that on the record. Oh, and a Princeton. Oh, for the clean stuff, I have a '66 Princeton. It's almost all the clean stuff is a '66 Princeton. Beautiful. It's yeah. It's just it, it's funny because I I discovered it about maybe seven or eight years ago. You know, it took me that long. But uh, it's just it's become my favorite clean recording amp. It just has a nice, just the perfect amount of sponginess to it, um, and, then, and warmth and, and size. And it's you know ten inch speaker. But it, it just all the clean stuff again is is uh, that amplifier. Now, when you're doing a typical miking of a guitar amp. Can I ask you what is your typical flow? Like, what microphone would you do, or two mics, and then do you go into a preamp or a compressor, and then like, what is? Do you go into a Universal Apollo, or what kind of gear do you use? Uh, well, the from I have a one twenty one Royer and a fifty seven, which is, seems to be the staple for a lot of people. Yeah, I was just doing when I was doing sessions, I kept seeing that combination, so yeah. I thought good enough for them, and I liked what it's, what I heard. So I have those microphones going into. Actually, I have some two. I have two quad eight mic uh-huh. pre's. Actually, the Orphan Audio guy in town here racks them up. Uh, quad eights into, uh, and they've got um, it's mic pre's and EQs going, and they're from the '70s, I think. These these mic pre's, they're old. Going into, I have two purple 1176 clones or copies. M M C seven seven purple audio. So those. From there into Pro Tools. Just a touch of it, you know, it just adds a little bit of something to it. Do you ever do reamping too, or not really? You, don't you know, I to. used to in the old days, man, when I, when I was living in a, a, a house or a, a condominium or an apartment, I would I would do that, I'd go to a studio and reamp it. For anyone who's never done that, you re-amp, you record the direct signal, and then later when you have the mics and the amp set up, you run it through at top volume and get the cranked amp. Yeah. However, sometimes, you know, more experienced players would say sometimes the inflections are a little weird. Or do you are you able to get all your inflections out of a reamping? Is that something you recommend, or is or is yeah? It, it worked for me. It worked for me. Um, the record I did two records ago, I a lot of it was reamped, and it, it worked. It worked. I thought it worked great. Not Harmonic Crusader, but the uh, Tabula Rasa. Uh-huh. Yeah, good portion of that of the lead stuff is was reamped. 
So back to Abbey Road. I mean, come on, you're a Beatles fan, and that's your first time there. Was there anything emotional, or what, what was the most striking thing about it, or the coolest thing you saw when you took the tour? There was a, a, a hallway with all the old boards, the, the yeah. old boards with the big levers for the faders. Yeah, they were the just all lined channels. up, and we I sat and stared at that. And then the the, the pianos, they've got the Lady Madonna piano, and you know, yeah, man. I played the Lady Madonna riff on the Lady Madonna piano. Oh, there you go. I have video to prove it. Yeah. You know what was cool, I thought, was that you can literally rent the four-channel board with the big levers that you're talking about that the Beatles used on a lot of their records because they maintain all. They're like such a serious, legit studio. They maintain all this stuff. No one ever really rents it because now we want 96 tracks or more. But Right. I didn't know uh, that yeah. that was all there for rental. I I, I yeah, didn't know I what it was so. there for. I didn't ask. I think you can, if you want to, man. You should do a track through there next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think you might have had the same feeling of going up into walking up those stairs, those iconic stairs in, in yeah. Studio Two. It's a little bit of a bus going into the control room because they completely remodeled it. So all yeah, those old it, pictures of the of the lads and George Martin. Over the board, you know that's not there anymore. It's it's all modern and 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 they blew. I think they blew out one of the walls and extended it. So that was not as is that was a little bit surprising. But uh, the rest of it, you know, the, the studio itself, as you saw, is is exactly the same. The the walls and the ceiling treatment and all that stuff. The floors. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I then, think I had the same experience that anybody would have going in there, just being in, being being in awe, just taking in all the history and the significance. Of that room. Yep. And then you had to cross the crosswalk, I'm sure, out front, like on the cover of Abbey Road. Yeah, I made sure I got one of those <laughs> pictures. Yeah, so track two on Uncommon Measures, your new album, starts off with this really cool hypnotic sort of ostinato, ends up with like some McLaughlin lines or something. Or What's, what's the inspiration for this tune? Um... It's called All the Colors. Yeah, of the right. World. Yes, that one. You know, the, the funny thing about it again, it's just, it's it's interesting to talk about it because I'm so uh, brainless, so to speak, or I, I'm out of the way. I get out of the way of my brain, my the limitations of my brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's the, there's really no ever any inspiration when I start any of this music for this project because everything else I do, everything's laid out. The inspiration, the plot, the storyline. So I kind of purposely, it's almost like a meditative state, a meditative state where you just clear the mind and just let happen, let your instincts kind of take over. Uh, and, and then the same kind of case, and just, just building the first section, and then just taking that, taking me to whatever the, the, the muse goes. There's a monster rock guitar solo. Again, just the scream and tone. Let me see if I can find it here. So 
sounds like it could be a Marshall or something. It's just got the great crank rock tone in your face, plenty of mid-range. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was that was that might have been the comment on that one. And what's what's your go-to guitar for stuff? Uh I've got, you, I mean, you have a lot of guitars. Well, you know, I've got a couple. I've got... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. How many guitars do you use on a regular basis? I'd say about five. Yeah. And what are those? What those are those would five? Be, I've, got, uh, I've got a 59 335. That's incredible. I've got a uh, 55 Tele. I've got a uh, 63 Strat. A 63 Strat more so than those. Uh, and then, how do you have that set up? Do you have the bar floating at all? The yeah. bridge on that, uh-huh. so it goes up. It, you pull it up like a whole step or something. Or? I just want to be able to give it some wiggle in both areas, uh, down and up. You know, so it, yeah. I don't know if it goes up a full whole step, but may, 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 it might. And then I have a a, a Gretsch Duo Jet. It's one of those Steven Stern custom. Okay, that's very good. I I, I use that often. And then I also have a a, a Thorn guitar. Familiar with Ron Thorne and his his guitars? Yeah, he's a builder down here. For years, he's worked for. In fact, I think he's gone back to Fender. He's he's been their their inlay guy. He's a genius inlay guy. Anything super decorative and, and customized, he's he's done all those. But he's but he had his own company for for several years, and he's made, he made some great guitars. And it's it's I'll hold it up. Can you see this? Yeah, yeah. It's just it's so it's a strat, you know, but it's got a humbucking in the back and and a tremolo. Man. So I use that. I use that as well. Stiffen on different tunes for the acoustic guitar at the end. That has a cool mid range. Oh yeah, that is a uh, Alt Altamira. Um, it's like a Django style, Ma- uh, a Selmer McAfee uh, style guitar. Yeah, I figured it might be because I know you're a Django. Yeah, fan. it's just a. I I love Django and and uh, I have a couple of those types of guitars and they just have a really diff- interesting sound to me. I didn't really know that. I couldn't figure out how how. Those players were able to bend the strings as they do, but they're light strings. They're like tens or elevens. So, and it's a different kind of string. And it's high action, but the strings are light. I just love the sound. It is there's, there's no nothing like the way those particular guitars sound. Now, your slide playing is just spectacular. On top of all of your alternate picking chops and everything else you do in acoustic finger style, your slide is just it's phenomenal, man. You got to share some slide tips with us. Do you uh, use the slide first of all on all of your guitars? Is the action appropriate, or do you have some guitars that have better action for? Slide? Oh yeah, no, I need, I need, I need the help. So I have a for that. I, I use a. I have a '66 Trini Lopez. <laughs> really? I, I, yeah, I just you know it's just a great sounding guitar, and and um, I pretty much use that guitar for anything slide. That's the guitar I'll go to. I've I've raised the action pretty high. And I've got heavier strings on it. Well, this song, Our Friendship, which is the last song on Uncommon Measures, beautiful slide playing. Is that is that the Trini Lopez? Oh, you know, no, that one, I'm no. Because I'm switch. <laughs> I'm going, oh, that guitar, uh, oh, that guitar is really uh, unique. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it okay. to you right now. Give me a second. This guitar is oh, an MJ, MJ guitar. Uh, Dude, I've got you wouldn't believe it. I have like four MJ guitars. Oh, I used wow. to work with them quite a bit. 
Yeah, yeah. So there, uh, is it Novato? Uh, it's Northern California. Was it Novato or, or up further? It was up there, right? Santa Rosa? Yeah, maybe Santa Rosa. Anyway, I, I, as far as I know, they're still, they're still... I think they moved to Montana. Oh, seriously? Yeah, well, a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So this is... It's got a... You know, it's got two humbuckers, but I asked Steve Blucher at DeMarcio, I, I said, I wanted, I wanted uh, humbuckers that sounded like P90s. And I also wanted, I think the best sounding rock guitar I have is a, a 57 Les Paul Jr. I don't know what it is about that guitar, whether it's the simplicity. Right. But I had a theory that the distance between the bridge and the bridge pickup had something to do with it, where it was spaced. P90. Yeah, the P90, and so I wanted to. I we I wanted that this guitar to have the spacing of the of the back of the bridge pickup to be that same distance between that and the and the bridge as it is on a on a Les Paul uh, Junior. And then this is, has a sustainer, a st- sustainiac built into it. So there's some. Well, that was. Yeah. There's some sections there where I hold on the note and it just keeps on going. I was going to say, that was my next question. How do you get that insane sustain? And you yeah. just answered it. Yeah, it just has a sustainiac. So I've had this guitar for a long time. And it's, you know, it's a great, it's really a great sounding guitar. It's a, it's a fantastic, I don't, I, I, I tend to only use it when I want to use the sustainiac. So on that song, the uh, the last track of the record, you know, it's just a situation where I, I was playing it with with with, with not a, without a slide, and then, then I my ear wanted to hear something that I couldn't play because <laughs> it wasn't enough frets, and so I would just put the slide on, and then that then I might stay there for a while and do a few other lines, and then switch back. So you know, I'm punching in and out. You know, I'm not. Yeah. There's, there's nothing in there that's just a solo. None of the solos are just from start to finish without any punch-ins. I, I must admit to that. Yeah. What kind of slide do you use, and which finger do you put it on? Uh, I have a glass slide. It's a, a bottle, a blues bottle. You know the Dunlop blues bottles? Uh, I guess I do. I mean, it looks like an old vitamin bottle, whatever. Yeah, Corsetin. Corsetin. Corsetin bottle, yeah. Yeah, It's uh, and I put it on my uh, the ring finger. I think they have three right, different so sizes. I think I have the medium. I have pretty thin fingers. I'm a, I'm a thin guy. <laughs> <laughs> Guitar fingers right there, my friend. Yeah. And so, when you build your studio, it looks like you do. You have a home. Is this a, is this a home studio that you built from scratch? Yes, yes. Is there anything unique about it that you ordered specifically that might be different from other studios? It looks like you got a, a control room and a live room. That's correct. Yeah, it's a control room and and a live room and, and uh, nothing unusual. I've I've got a big thick sliding glass door between the two, which is it's not 100% soundproof, but it's it's plenty enough soundproof to to record. Well, I like the thick, heavy curtain that goes in front of in front of your monitors and the glass. Yeah, that that too. Yeah, so I've got drum set back there, several amps. I have a little station in the corner. That's my acoustic station. Where I've yeah. got several acoustic guitars and related acoustic instruments that I play. And then I've got I'm able to uh, record there as well because I've got a remote keyboard, monitor, and mouse just in the corner. So I record myself that way. And. Um, I love what you do with time. And again, this must be kind of, when you talk about, you know, 
challenging stuff for string players to walk in and sight read. I see there, there can be a lot of compound stuff where different measures combined back and forth, or there's overlaps like on the song Imaginary, I can't even read my world, my writing. Imaginary world. Right. It's like when it starts off, you wouldn't really think that it's like in three, four time, but it kind of sounds like once the groove kicks in, it's in three, four. Right, yes, really, yes, yeah. You have a lot of fun with that stuff. I love counterpoint and rhythm a lot. Yeah. Uh, very much influenced by Mahavishnu Orchestra. You know, that's 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 the granddaddy, John McLaughlin. And you know, I, I think there's a bit of an ode to those those two orchestral records that that he did with Michael Tilson Thomas and the London Symphony Orchestra. One's okay. Visions of the Emeralds Beyond, and the other one's called Apocalypse. Those were two hugely influential move, uh, records for me. The, with orchestra and and uh, and band, as I defined earlier. So uh, there's a lot. Yeah, there's this in his music in general. Even back to the earlier Mahavishnu Orchestra stuff, there was also there was always stuff in interesting time signatures. And then same thing with John Hammer and his his records. I'm a huge fan. Um, then Jeff Beck. You know, you got uh, Scatterbrain. You know, you got some odd meters yeah. in there. And you know, I've just I've always liked odd meter stuff. You know, I'm kind of a a, a, a fusion head. I was a young and influ- influential when that that stuff hit. And loved it, and I always have. You're also a, a kind of a funk head to a certain degree. You love the funk, like oh yeah, even like a song like track six, unsung hero. Right, starts yeah. off kind of funky. And. Uh, bourgeois tag i guess you had some funky grooves in in there yeah yeah that's the other side you know i i've just i was just a guy that just liked all kinds of music you know uh, i i love james brown just as much as stravinsky or or ravel you know <laughs> you can hear that man you can yeah totally hear that brecker um, brothers you know that i love that that sort of funk influence in jazz so as far as releasing this record i understand when when i called you the other day that you had finally connected with a guy named Steve Vai and chatted with him on the phone for quite a bit. What's going on? Yeah, uh, I met him backstage at a Todd Rundgren concert about a year and a half ago. One thing led to another. I ended up sending him my previous CD, and he reached out to me and said he he liked it, which is super nice of him to say. And uh, I just happened to tell him that I was working on this record, and and then he, he offered to... Uh, to run it past this 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 gentleman that works that works that who's the lead guy or the CEO of Mascot Records, right? He's the head of, of Mascot Records, which I believe that's Steve Vai's favorite nation's labels now under the umbrella of Mascot Label Group. And so Steve brought me to Mascot, and uh, the guy loved it, and we're just in the middle of of getting this deal together. Fantastic. So you're planning on a release in a few months? I'm not sure exactly what it is. Things are a little bit on hold right now with uh, this world virus. So I'm not I'm not sure what the what the time frame is going to be, but uh, we're still sort of we're still in the beginning stages of contractual information and all that. So it's a little bit premature. I, I there's no release date as of yet, but it, it looks like it's a go and uh, it that it'll be out sometime this year, hopefully. 
better come out this year, man. We can't keep people waiting. This yeah, too good. I know. People need I'm, music I'm, now. I'm, chom- <laughs> I'm chomping at the bit. I'm basically just waiting, like uh, trying to be patient. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes things take a while, but uh, the record is done. It's complete. It's mastered. And you guys, it is a weird time right now. I guess you're uh, all. You have kids. I have one son. He's 17. Yeah. So you guys are all shacked up and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's Weathering. home. You know, he's home. They 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 stopped school as of this week. On campus school, yeah, man. Is he's he's they've moved over to online schooling, and so far so good. You know, it's just it's just strange. It's just it's a weird. It just feels like a like a bad movie. I know it's nothing that we would have ever dreamed up of all the things we think about growing up that could happen. Yeah, this one really kind whatever. of blindsided us, but. Uh, you know, yeah. may, maybe it's different for the people that remember polio when that was ravaging people. You know, but for for the living now, it's a it's just really a strange and uh, unsettling situation. Well, thank, thanks for taking part in the first social distancing the first social distancing podcast of this this run. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> we'll definitely check back in with you when the album is is ready, and like I said, maybe you can. Uh, show us some stuff and we'll do another follow-up yeah that would be great i'd love that thank you and promote it i was gonna just ask you some stuff just like i mean the list of killer artists you've worked with too i have to ask you about some of these people like first of all i'm a huge beck fan well both becks jeff beck but also beck the hipster super funny funky cat from who put who made silver lake a hip neighborhood i guess (laughs) 10 20 years ago beck I've always found him to be so creative and different. Like, is there any approach that he's taken towards making music or touring or performing that really struck you as just as uniquely Beck? Oh yeah, there's tons. You know, he's just he's an artist in every aspect of that permutation of that word. Um, he too, as as we all have, have heard through all his music, it's just he likes all kinds of stuff. But he just has this, he has this filter. You know, I, I, I see that with artists that I've worked for that have a real strong sense of their self, their artistic self. They just, I see it like a filter. Like, they listen to it, but when they interpret it, it comes out that's uniquely their take on it. And he's certainly no, uh, he's exactly that. Whether it be the funky yeah. stuff on Midnight Vultures or the, uh, min, or the, uh, the more acoustic sighting stuff, like on Sea Change and... And mutations, um, he just really has this beautiful way of of making it his own. Yeah, and he's, he's got really, personality. And he, the great thing, the thing that's great about him is that he he understands the importance of detail, the minute detail. When I first started working with him, it was a little it was a little difficult for me because I'd sort of come from I'd come from scenarios where I was hired to do my thing and to a large degree, just sort of left alone. Mm-hmm. But with Beck, it's almost like he's, it's a movie and he has to cast the right player and they have to say the right words and they have to say it in the right way. So initially it was a, it was a little bit, I'll be honest, it was a little difficult for me. But when I... Like when what's I, a moment that you remember that was difficult? Well, I just remember there was just something, uh, you know, he just, he just had a lot of... Uh, the tone, like getting certain kind of tones for certain things. I remember one time we were rehearsing, and he asked me if I had a different sounding reverb, 
And I just kind of pointed at my super reverb. I said, "That's the reverb," you know. <laughs> I mean, I said it nicely, and yeah. he was, and he was, he's. But because you have, maybe we could use something. And he had a very descriptive. He wanted a certain kind of sound of reverb for the t- part I was playing. So it was just this minute detail. But when I just gave into it, I learned so much, and I've taken that to everything I do. To be honest, he just has all those little details add up. Uh, and if I'm doing a score that's a rock score, well, the drums better sound like rock drums, and they, they better get the the guy that plays what I feel is a, a more convincing rock beat, or uh, that goes across any other instrumentation. So that's what's that's what's, what's so great about him. Before I forget, you have some monster musicians on your album, but I don't know the credits yet. Like on the first song, there's an incredible drum solo on North Star. That's Vinny Caliuti. Vinny Caliuti. Vinny Caliuta. Damn, you know what? I was meaning to call that. Like I, I was, like I. It sounded like him. He has a sound. I was like, I bet it's Vinny. Yeah. And then well, see, that's a things. perfect example. That's a perfect example because when I map, map that sound out, out I, was, I was thinking, what? Who do I want to play on it? Who plays instinctively? the way that I want them to play without having to say a word. And that, I, I knew 100% it was for Vinny. And sure enough, yeah. I didn't have to say anything. I don't believe, I, I can't remember anything I told him. He just, he heard the music and he automatically interpreted it 100% the way that I wanted him to play. I think he's the a only, good reader I too. Think the only thing I said was, okay, between this bar and this bar, it's a drum solo. I believe that's the only thing I ever said to him. And was he reading down the score? Because he's a good reader. Yeah. It was. Uh, I mapped out the whole tr- the whole track. So, again, to some of these players you play with, I had the, I had the uh, pleasure once of watching the police from the side of the stage. We had played on a different stage at the Virgin Music Festival, a small stage, but I had these backstage passes. This was with the, This was in two thousand five or something. It's the re yeah uh, the, <laughs> the the the, the re- reunion tour that was that would that would have been nine. It was right after a tour I did with him, so it was that that would have been 2007, I believe. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. that was the best with the years. Amy Winehouse was there. It was just cr- Beastie Boys were on the same stage, and wow, I'm sitting there watching the Police play, and all three of them are amazing. But Sting up front looks like God decided, you know, I'm going to chisel myself a rock star, and just just was sitting there and just boom, there he is. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, he's. He's just, he's got it, man. He's just got everything. He's just, he takes care of himself. I wouldn't want to get in a scrapple with him. <laughs> he's very much in shape. He takes care of himself and uh, he's great. I really, really enjoyed working with him because, you know, the police was a well, what's, huge well, What's band. an interesting part about how he approaches music? You did a lot of touring with him and you're on one record, right? With a Sting yeah, record? That's right. Yeah, we wrote some songs for a record that was on uh, uh, the record 57th and 57th and 8th or is it 9th? I can't remember. Right. Anyway, uh, he was he was uh, kind of the not quite, not the Beck thing where it's, the first thing he told me was like, Lyle, this is not a police cover band. Just do your own thing. But Sweet. but but that's but I wanted to play 
I wanted to play those parts. They were so great. Oh, yeah. You know, I wasn't going to improve upon those those police guitar parts. So I, I really wanted to, to, to go that route with it. But yeah, he pretty much just leaves his, you know, his same thing. He just hires good musicians and, and he, he lets he leaves them alone. You know, just, let, just do your thing. Any interesting things watching him perform or he's leading the band? I mean, what an interesting cat. There must be something that stands out about Sting on stage. Well, just his consistency with his voice. It's just, you know, he's just spot on. We never had to lower keys because of, because, because of whereas he is with his voice. He still could sing every single note he ever has. He just, just he just takes care of his of his instrument, and um, yeah, just that consistency, night after night, was just uh, remarkable. I guess you were sharing duties with Dominic Miller. Yes, Dominic <laughs> Miller, who I, I love. He's he was just so so welcoming, welcoming, welcoming right. of me, and uh, very generous, and you know, happy to switch solos and and switch parts and. He was great. The compliment yeah. sideman. I, I I learned a lot from watching how he dealt, how he how he communicates with Sting and vice versa. He's just great at it, and it's just a uh, stellar individual. What's your advice for communicating with Sting? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> really listen, really listen hard, and just be just be attentive and 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 just be present. Sting was yeah. great. I mean, it was, he he was just great to work with. Very relaxed. Never got upset or, or frustrated. It was never like that at all. It was just a, it was just really a pleasure all around. Yeah, I can only and same imagine. thing really with all the people I've worked with. Uh, Beck for sure, just great. You know, Todd could get a little uh, grouchy. Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren was you know he can get a little grouchy every now and again, but uh, you know what he do you just, mean by he's, that? A, he's operating at such a higher level than most most humans. I mean, yeah. I, I I realized that when we we were rehearsing for. This record we did called Nearly Human uh, for the tour for that record, which we had recorded. It was recorded live in the studio, so no overdubs. But I just remember we, we, we were learning all the parts, and there were some there were some uh, harmonies or like all these harmonies, and 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 he just that stuff comes. He just hears it all at once. It's just incredible. Um, so it would just take us mere mortals longer to sort of get. All this music under our on our under our fingers and under you know our mouths and um. yeah I know what you mean. Certain people where it makes you it seems like the world must look like it's in slow motion to them. I, yeah, I think he's I think he's of that ilk to be honest. I played with uh, Greg Howe. Oh the, uh, gosh, you know, yeah, and he's so melodic and he has so many notes. That, yeah, I felt, I felt like yeah, he, the world it must look slow to him because he's <laughs> fits so much melody into so many measures. Yeah, he's into, on, he's unreal. Man, few he's a great player. So. On the Hollywood side of being a music composer, man, you're really done some really great movies. I can't remember if we listed them, but you know, Forty Year Old Virgin, Super Bad. You've done the show Crashing on HBO, Love, Good Girls, Get Him to the Greek. What about like release parties? Do you go to these things, have some fun, hang out with Jonah Hill and Judd Apatow? What's up? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. The premiere. They have the the film premiere parties. Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the time where we all can just congratulate each other and thank everyone for a job well done and all the work they put into it. So, yeah, it, that, those are fun. That's a real fun time. Um, great to see everybody because often times, Give Them the Greek was an exception because I, I had to be on the, <clears throat> I had to be for all the times they filmed the band, I had to be there to work with Russell and just to 
just to just to be a good support. Um, so the, so I was interfacing with the actors because yeah. of that. But on most movies, you don't see anybody until the premiere party. Right. So how far do you go into like? I mean, in, in Hollywood, there's like definitely this opportunity to network at any moment and really push, go off in these, or, or is it more like you come out of your Batman cave every once in a while and do some Hollywood networking and do go to the party and rub elbows, but then zoom back up the hill or how does it work for you in this? Culture? Yeah, I, oh, I just, you know, I, I basically just say hello and I may introduce myself to some of the, some of the people or actors or, uh, other people I haven't met, but that, that's as far as it goes. And, and they'll because I've been watching them and staring at their faces, you know, for the past three months. So you kind of feel like you 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 know them to a certain degree, you know, not, not their real their characters right. at least. And so it's always a fun place to say I really enjoyed your performance, and it was a it was a pleasure to make music to your dialogue, and and that's as far as it gets. And the, and they're usually really gracious and. Complimentary. Yeah. Well, it helps that you look like a rock star too, man. Uh, <laughs> You're looking good, brother. Oh, thanks. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, tell me though. I mean, what a. I know you did a movie called I think it was Made. Oh God, yeah, that's the first one. What was the first real fat movie premiere that you went to? That you're like you get everyone you know the big premiere and you're seeing your music and all everyone's there that probably the director and the stars and then maybe a big thing down Hollywood Boulevard. What's that feeling like? Tell me about that. Walking in there. Yeah, it, no, it's great. The first time you you just your eyes are wide open uh, and that that for me was forty year old version because yes. Made was the first movie I did. I, I did it with another musician, a guy named John O'Brien, not to be confused with John Bryan, but John O'Brien. Uh, I don't remember even if we had a premiere for that a premiere party. Right. Well, forty-year-old version was a big deal. Yeah, that was a big deal, and that that really that movie solidified this career essentially. That and Superbad were both two, uh, num- two movies that debuted at number one for two weeks in a row. So I was yeah. essentially an unknown, uh, unknown in the business to. Everyone really want all the agents wanting to represent me. All the various agents. <laughs> Do you uh, have an agent now? Oh yeah, I've, I've been with the same guy from the from the beginning. This is something that a lot of us, you know, up and coming hopeful composers don't know much about. Like, what's what's the deal with having a an agent? And I guess it's a necessity. It's a necessity. In- yeah, because they're the ones communicating all the business on the business end. And working out the 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 main points you know you've got a lawyer but they they work out the main points of your deal and they they communicate directly with the the heads of music of each studio they're there to jump in if there's any kind of problem um they, you know they negotiate on your behalf and they put you up for work and and uh so client make uh, a studio may call say we we want to check uh, into some composer A well he's too busy well then my my agent would say well what about this guy so they they've got their they've got a big umbrella who's your agent do you want to say or is yeah it, it's first wanna... artist management ma- first artist management uh, Vas Vangelos is my agent he's the he's the head CEO can I ask how, how much does an, a music agent typically take off of the I imagine maybe it's a percentage of whatever it's a deal percentage. you get yeah it's usually around somewhere between 10% and uh, 15% just depending on who the agent is you know, I don't know yeah. what the agents do I don't know what other agents uh, what right, their right. fee is you also you know this. I've had a couple of funny moments on where after a show this happened twice someone 
comes up to me is like, oh man, I've been your fan for so long. I'm like already, I'm already suspicious at that point. <laughs> you shouldn't be. And then, and then they're like, yeah, I've been a Jude Cole fan. Uh, and then I realized, oh, so I got introduced on stage uh, as Jude Gold, and you oh, heard no. Jude Cole, and you think I'm Jude Cole, but clearly I don't look anything like him. But you actually toured with Jude Cole. Yeah, I did. Who is Jude Cole? I know he's a singer songwriter. He's, he's great, a singer you know? songwriter, you know, that had some some, some hit singles. Uh, and uh, yeah, he just uh, I got called to do this gig to to, to tour with him. Uh, Tos, the drummer of Tos Panos was in that band, and that's how we got to be really close friends. And we toured together. It was a real fun tour. Yeah, that's the thing. You, you start, you know, when you start to get around, people start to talk about you, and it's word of mouth, and that's the business that we're in, essentially. How did you get from A to B? It's like, well, I, I just worked with this person, they, then they they spoke highly of me to someone else, and. They get to hear your work or see you work, and and um, it just kind of start. It, it, it builds upon itself, really. Does your kid? I don't know his name. Wyatt. Wyatt. Is he thrilled by you? Like I'm always like, I play in Jefferson Starship, and like Kathy, our lead singer, her two kids. Like, remember they were finally old enough to come to a show. They were like, they went to the side of the stage and watched for like three minutes, and they're like, cool. <laughs> and then they went back and were like watching go iPads or something. 100%. I mean, yeah, I got the same thing. I mean, eventually, though, they pick up and then they notice, holy shit, whoa, what dad does is pretty cool. Yeah I, so think, how, how, yeah, I think it's the same thing for me. You know, he's, he's seen it all his life. You know, when yeah. I, when he was three years old, we, we I took, I was touring with uh, with Sting, and so my wife and my son, they came out and did a little, little tour kind of around where we were, and they stayed with, with me, you know, various places. So he's seen it all all his life. It's not you know, he's running around while we're doing super bad in the in the studio with all uh, with the band playing. It's just it's just, it. it's just what it is. It's no big deal. I remember talking to Lukather on this podcast, and he was saying his little daughter, when he you know headlined the Greek theater recently, her biggest thrill was that she got to wear one of the security walkie talkies and be a security person. For her, oh, that was the whole sweet. thrill. That's fantastic. <laughs> So speaking of shows, you got to tell us about. I think it was called Live Eight. Oh yeah, Sting? yeah. What was that in 2004? Right. Yeah, that was my, that was the first thing I did with Sting. The first gig. Yeah, the very first thing, very first thing they did. And Live Eight was well, Live Aid had happened years before in the what was 86 or something, something like right. that. So this was the that same was like, thing. This was uh, another benefit for famine. Uh, was it where was it held? Hyde Park in London. So that must be like seventy thousand people or something. Oh yeah, yeah. So talk about eyes open because on the bill, Sting, Pink Floyd, The Who, Madonna. It was just unbelievable. So just hanging out backstage, Bob McCartney was there. McCartney wow. played. So backstage, it was just just looking around. Oh, there's David Gilman. Elton John. I'm talking to his bass player, and then he walks up and starts talking to us, and uh, uh, it was. I'd never been in a situation like that before, and it was uh, it was just great, you know. It was just great to work gig. all your life to aspire to that level, and then to suddenly just be there in that moment. It was something that really uh, hit home. I can only imagine. So, is there a gig right now that you would hop put put your composing on hold if somebody like Paul McCartney or somebody was like, "Yo, I need you for a six month tour." Okay, give me a minute to think about that. Peter Gabriel. Nice. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, uh, he's he's the toppermost <laughs> oh, okay. of the of the the living. 
Yeah. What was the most amazing, like, was there a guitar concert that you saw maybe as a teenager or something that just was really life-changing, like a guitar performance? What, like, anything that... Oh, uh, my gosh. You know, I think, like most of us, there's probably too many, but there were so many of them, man. I mean, uh, I saw 10 years after when I was a kid, and that was amazing. Oh, wow. Alvin Lee, I... I you know, I'm a yeah. rock, I'm a rock guitar player. Really, you know, if I have to, if I had to use one word, one to describe the style, I'm a rocker. You know, I'm a rock guitar player that happens to like a bunch of other music. You have a s- serious amount of chops for. I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but for a person who's mostly a composer <laughs> now, it seems like 90 percent of the time you're composing and working in the studio. This recently for your new album, but also for all these movies, you're you've got sick chops, man. Where did you, I mean, like, I don't know if it was a conscious thing, but over the years or decades, you definitely built up some attack. Yeah, it's, I wanted to figure out what these other players were doing. And so I would just sit and listen and, and absorb it and sometimes learn licks, riffs. And it started with, with uh, George Harrison to uh, John Fogarty to... Alvin Lee to Jimi Hendrix to Pete Townsend to Johnny Winter to B.B. King to John McLaughlin to Alan Holdsworth, you know, on and on. You know, I just yeah. so as as my taste in music were advancing, so I, I didn't know that it was possible that a guitar could do such a thing. I'm sure you had the exact same thing too, when you you hear someone that's doing doing their own thing and expand the boundaries. And so I was always inspired by that, and, and just, just I don't want to say I dabbled in each thing, but I I spent time with those records, a lot of time listening and playing along and learning learning some of the tra- the tunes and tracks. Steve Morris was another gigantic influence. Yeah, yeah. Because I I I've always been influenced by the music behind the guitar playing, and for me the music has to be at least as compelling. Is what they're doing. You know, what's happening before the solos is really important. And I think it's just from my Beatle background and just wanting to have a good musical experience beyond the technical. That's Um, beautiful, man. But yeah, so... That's what I love about your record, man. It's not a guitar record. It's it's an album, and it's the same. I feel exactly the same, whether there's guitar playing or not. Yeah. The boat is floating, man. (laughs) It's... Yeah, it's really great. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's it's as varied as my taste are, I guess. You know, I think it, I, it's somehow I feel it, it even has all these elements of uh, jazz and uh, progressive rock was a big thing for me. You know, I was a big Genesis fan, still am. As yes, you know, as it was with yes. Uh, so you know, I was growing up at the time where that stuff was really, really popular. That really influenced my playing and my influenced my playing and it has influenced my writing to a great deal. Now that there are so many guitar players who are probably sitting at home more often than they were previously when live music was still happening, and of course we all hope that it comes back very soon. But um, what advice would you have for recording musicians who are also composers who want to maybe branch out, if possible, some way into scoring for film or tv or tv commercials how can they what's some career advice you could offer to get going in that direction you know things have changed a lot since i got into it and it'd be hard to to know exactly what to say to people 
the industry has changed. The way movies are being made has changed. Uh, there used to be a good portion of movies, middle middle budget movies. Those are pretty much gone. They're either independent, in, uh, inexpensive ones, or big blockbusters. You know, it's it's it's. I can only give advice through my own experience. Basically, right. just giving you a, a very brief. Uh, I won't go into the detail, but it was all through the side door. It was all through session work. It was all through being a musician playing on pop records that led to my experience now. I suppose in in a, in a slightly similar way would be Danny Elfman came from the the rock world or whatever you know. Yeah. Or Trevor Rabin, they came at it from another able. So that's. It's hard to, talk with, to, to sort talk of suggest that to people to have to have that experience because that's that's really not practical anymore. Right, right. Well, do you and Danny Elfman and Trevor Raven ever just talk shop? Uh, no, uh, not not with those. I I played on uh, a Men in Black uh, soundtrack though, <laughs> ah, but Danny wasn't there. It was Steve, his, his Steve Bartek, his orchestrator, and also was the guitar player and. Oingo Boingo. Um, yeah, yeah well, so it's really been a it's really been a, a a side door, very unusual trajectory for me to how I got to be in scoring films. Is there an example of one of these side door moments that you can think of where a surprisingly one side door led to a bigger door? Well, the only thing I could tell you would be mine, my my situation, right. which was yeah. well, the first film I did made was because I I was working on a record uh, here in town. I was hired to play guitar on it, and one of the writers, it was that, that gentleman I, I spoke about earlier, John O'Brien, and uh, we got to be good friends through the making of that record, and then I had John O'Brien in on projects I was working on where I was writing music for a commercial house. This commercial house uh, had hired me to play guitar, but then they knew I was a writer, so they they had me submit or, or vie for, for jobs that their their company had been awarded. And they had a number of writers, in-house writers. So they said, Lyle, you write music. I, I see you wrote music with Bourgeois Tag. If you want to try this Reebok ad, um, and we'll, we'll submit the various writers we have under our company, and, and if you get it, you get it. And so I, I, I started doing that and started to getting these, these awarded these uh, nice. commercials. So that was my first experience in writing music to picture. And so I started working with John O'Brien because he was a really good programmer and some of the music required that, that, that sort of treatment. And then shortly after that, John O'Brien was asked by his friend John Favreau to do John's movie Made. And John O'Brien asked me to co-compose it with him because he had seen that I had all these other skills that he thought would be a good blend with his. Nice. So that really didn't lead to anything big. It was just a movie that I had under my belt. So I had the movie. I had several jingles. Right. One of the sessions I was doing at the time was for a, a film composer, uh, Ed Shermer. His wife uh, was an ex- ex- executive at, at Universal Pictures. She called her husband, Ed, and said, Hey, Harry, the vice president of music here, wants to need some guitar and some of his own music. Um, what do you suggest? Yeah. Ed said, Well... We should just send him over to Lyle's house. He has a studio. And so what ended happening, so, you know, Ed was very sweet about it. He said, hey, you know, I know you would like to get into composing. It wouldn't be a bad idea to do this guy a favor. And so Harry Garfield, vice, vice P, VP of, of music, came to my studio. I played guitar on his track, and I had a CD ready. And I, t- <laughs> and I told nice. him, hey, Harry, uh, I actually do. I have done some composing. I did uh, this independent movie for John Favreau and I've done several commercials and 
if you don't mind, here's a CD. And he took it, and I thought, well, I'll never hear from him again. <laughs> now, what, what did you put on that CD? I put on stuff from Made and the commercial stuff, and I might have put in some instrumental things I'd been working on, maybe maybe one track for one or two tracks from my uh, previous records. And he called me back. He said, I really like what I heard. It's your... You're, you play guitar, but I hear that you've all this, you have this versatility and this other stuff. And would you be interested in uh, submitting some music for a, a movie that we're putting out? Uh, it was a Will Ferrell comedy, and uh, the director wanted some music that Harry Garfield thought was in my wheelhouse. And so I said, "Yeah, said send me whatever you want. I'm happy to to to, to do this. You know, it's just it's on spec." So I wrote a bunch of material, and it ended up in the movie. It was a movie called Kicking and Screaming. It was just additional music. They already had a composer. Uh, one of the producers was Judd Apatow. And shortly after, Judd signed his directorial deal with Universal. And when it came time to do his first movie, which was 40-Year-Old Virgin, you know, Harry Garfield, the VP, said, said, said to Judd, maybe we should give this guy a shot. You know, he, did, he did a nice job with that uh, movie we just put out, uh, Will Ferrell wow. film. And so... Judd said, "Well, why not? Let's 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 give him let's give him some couple scenes and see what he does with it." I yeah. wrote some music. Judd liked it, and I got the gig. Uh, and that from that basically started the whole thing. So as you can see, it was this very interesting side door yeah. kind of. And that's the all, that's the only thing I could tell people. I, there's no other way that I know how to do it, really. You know, other than right. being being in film school and and and. Befriending a young, talented, up-and-coming director, and uh, he gets a gets a sh shot, does a student movie, and then gets an independent, and the next thing you know, he he grows up the ladder. That happens. Good stuff. Too. And that's how some people get their start. Now I know you're under deadline right now, as we speak. You got another orchestral thing coming up. You're getting ready for those sessions. What are you What are you working on right now? Can we ask? Yeah, I've been writing. Um, I guess I could call it library material for, for Facebook. They have a program called Sound Collection. And essentially, it's just free content for their users, for people that want to put music in their videos when they post them. Um, oh. And so I've been working for Facebook for, for now four years. Yeah. The, the people that are in charge of that program, it's, it's, it's a couple, Will and Leslie Littlejohn. And Will used to be in a band that opened up for Bourgeois Tag. So I've known Will for decades. Yeah, that's some peninsula, like yeah. Silicon Valley stuff. Exactly going back right. to your, you know, you're right. from San Jose. Yep, yep. And so he asked if I'd be interested, and uh, here we are four years later. Well, I'm kind of familiar with that, not because I've worked in it, but I have a good friend named Zach Smith who works oh, for Apple. Oh, yeah, sure. Yep. And I've he done blew some my stuff mind when he's, well. like, yeah. mm -hmm. he's like hiring the London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road and stuff to do stuff. Well, what? But he works for Apple. Yeah, he's, he's, like, he's hired me. I've worked for him. Uh, for Apple. Yeah, I'm not, yeah so we've not done, surprised. I've done yeah. some, some stuff. And it's the same kind of thing where, like, if you make an iMovie and you want to have that trailer music and, you know, public domain music that you can use on YouTube and it won't get, like, but it sounds amazing. Yeah. And it's copyright free, then that's, they're higher. They have a huge budget to hire orchestras and yes, a lot of workmen's and, uh, Make that happen, just so you can make a cool movie on your iPad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's been really fun, and we're I'm going to do a, a remote session with a with an orchestra in Budapest. I've never I've done one in Bratislava, but I've not done one in Budapest. Where I'm essentially sitting here as I am now, and uh, I've got a microphone. I'm communicating in real time with the with the conductor, the engineer, and the the orchestra. 
yeah, as the and, session's and happening. You're, and you're hearing pretty high quality audio, but maybe a slight delay. It's yeah, it's it's high quality audio. It's it's full full bandwidth. And I must imagine maybe the advantage is the Budapest Orchestra. I know they have orchestras in India too that are much more affordable. Or yeah, I don't know. That's it. I mean, essentially, that's it. If I had yeah. my druthers, I would do everything here or in London. Um, yeah. I mean, not um, uh, there's some really great orchestras everywhere. But if we're yeah. talking about the cream of the crop, you know, those are the two places. An amazing thing about Lyle Workman is that you can handle a full-on orchestra. And then also, you, you tamed these funk cats. You got like Bootsy Collins and some James Brown players. You basically kind of had P-Funk going on for the Superbad soundtrack. How is your approach to that? And, you know, I mean, obviously, you're a producer and a composer, and you're trying to get the best performance out of, out of these great musicians. Uh, what, what was that experience like? Uh, it was great. It was it was uh, amazing. The funniest. I'll tell you a little story about it. Was that was it was uh, that's a bit unusual and fun. When it was determined that that music, funk, R and B, soul, was to be the score of Superbad, as it is in the songs that they were that they were going to have in the track. I could have said, "Great, I'll I'll get some guys like we do, and we'll 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 get a funky score going, and that'll be it." But I wanted to that music to be as authentic as possible because the songs were so great that they were using in the movie, and the movie was so good from the get go. I remember seeing an early cut of it. It was a small. It was a friend. They call friends and family, and I was literally pinching myself. This is the next Fast Times at Ridgemont High, or. You know, th- this is going to yeah. be a classic comedy forever. And I just knew that the music, the score had to, it had to sound just as legitimate. And so why, why not, why not get the real guys to do it? So the, the first idea was, was Bootsy Collins, because he played in both James Brown and Parliament P-Funk. Yeah. He played on Sex Machine, I think. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't even know that. Is that so? I'll double check. But yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's so great. So I yeah. wanted Bo- Bootsy, I wanted those drummers. I wanted, or one of the drummers, I should say, and then I wanted, uh, I wanted uh, Bernie Worrell. I wanted that that core. Yeah. So I had after deciding, I was like, well, how how am I going to get a hold of Bootsy Collins? I I don't know anybody that knows him. I don't. He doesn't live here. And unbelievably, I got a email ad for Godlike. You know the Godlike company that makes yeah, the yeah. pedals. Max on Kevin. Kevin, Kevin, yeah, yeah, I know Kevin. And it was just an ad that said, "Come to Nam, Bootsy Collins appearing at the Godlike booth." I was like, "What?" Now I'd gotten, I was on the mailing list because I'd been using Maxon pedals and I was friendly with with Kevin. I just happened to get this thing out of the blue. Literally, <laughs> so when I'm awesome. trying to figure out how am I going to get in touch with Bootsy Collins, so I just I, I I called Kevin. I said, "Hey, listen, I'm doing this movie. Explain it to him." And uh, would you ask Kevin, is there any way I can get in touch with, with, with Bootsy or Bootsy's manager? And so he orchestrated that. Next thing I know, I'm on the phone with his manager. Next thing I know, I'm going to the NAMM show with the director of the movie and the music, uh, and the music supervisor slash editor, Jonathan, who I'd mentioned earlier. So we go to the NAMM show and, and go, to the, go to the booth, and there's Bootsy. And uh, we waited when he was uh, was free a little bit, and we had like a little sidebar meeting for five minutes, and kind of agreed that let's 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 talk about this, let's get this going. And right. Bootsy then facilitated uh, the drummers. He said, "You need both drummers." I said, "Ah, uh, I really only want." He goes, "Trust me, you need both of them." 
I learned, Interesting. I learned why later. And so that's how the whole thing came together. Why did you need both drummers? Well, the reason why, he, I just took his word for it. The, and I found out exactly what it was. When we're finally there at the session, it was at Capitol Records. The whole band's there. Everything's all set up. We're, we're ready to start the first queue. Are you in Studio A, the big room? Yes. Yeah, right. in the big room. And the first cue starts with a, you know, you know, like a the intro to Shaft or something. And so I decided, oh, let's start with you, you know, with Jabo. And then so he he said, okay, let's 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 that's fine. I'm I'm happy with it. So I had set the music to them in advance because I wasn't going to rely on reading skills because nobody reads except for for Bernie. So I had to give them the material in advance so they would learn it or at least get comfortable with it but also being prepared that if we had to rehearse each cue as a band and then record it we had that we had we set enough time aside to do that um this was again this is a time when the budgets were bigger and we could we could afford to do that uh and so jabo sits on the drums and he starts to play this the hi-hats but he's swinging them and I said, no, it's more straight. I mean, I want it more like really straight, like da 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 da. And he just can't help but swing. And even when he straightened it out, it still had a hint of the swing to it. And so just then, the other drummer, Clyde Stubblefield, was in the control room, and he could hear everything goes on. So he presses the tap back button, the talkback button, and he says, "Lyle, I think you know maybe I should be the one on this cue." And so he came out, and sure enough, da, 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 he was straight, perfect eighths. And so I realized, okay, you got your swing guy, and you got your straight eighths guy. Yeah. And that was the whole thing. Then I knew from then on how who I would do. I didn't want two drummers playing at the same time, because their feels are, are quite a bit different. And they're both amazing. And, and Did just, they have and, two different drum kits? Yeah. So you had a whole bunch of mics going. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the difference. That's why we needed two drums. Two drummers. Right on. Well, um, well, that was a great job of, of bringing them in. I guess you got some budget from the studio to do that, obviously. You had to run that by oh, the committee. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was just as expensive as having a, a 80-piece orchestra. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. We, we recorded over like four or five days. So it was usually you do a, a score, it's a, it's, it's a one day. But we had, to rehe- we had to rehearse all the cues. And uh, I mean, yeah, it was, I think it was four days, I think it was. But we, we took our time and did it right. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. You had some funny funny lunches with those guys. I mean, oh, Bootsy yeah. is a riot. Well, it, was a, it, was a, it was a family reunion for those, for those guys. They hadn't seen each other in a while. So it was really, just, I, was just, I, just, I just sat there and listened and laughed. It was really beautiful, man. It was a, a great assemblage of old friends that had all this history. Yeah. And then so, of course, our good friend Matt Blackett. Mm, I love Matt. He told me he pointed out that he first discovered you on a Mike Var- Mike Varney compilation U.S. Metal uh-huh. back you know a few lifetimes ago where you were shredding and of course you went into Bourgeois Tag and um, I, I don't know if I have the whole timeline right but I definitely remember when the first Jellyfish record came out like the very first song so beautiful and psychedelic and and the harmonies and the attention to detail every little element so intentional and then i hear that same thing on the second record which is spilt milk and i guess that's when you came in to jellyfish yeah and uh and you're working with john bryan mm-hmm. well, we, guitar we, duties. we weren't there together but yeah we uh, uh 
we were on the record. Yeah, I, I heard that first Jellyfish record. I thought, who is this great band from England? Right. And it turns out, not only are they not from England, but they're guys in my neighborhood. You know, they're Bay Area guys. Andy Sturmer and Roger Manning had was in a band, Beatnik Beach, who had opened for Bourgeois Tag uh, at least one time. So I actually seen their band. I was, oh, wow. So I... I saw it after them, after I heard that record, and, and I basically, I just said, if you're ever in a situation where you need a guitar player, I would love to be, to, to do anything you would want, because I loved that record. It was so unusual at the time, Yeah, that first Jellyfish record, and then that, I just got the call, and I said, would you, do you want to play on this record? They were like the Steely Dan of early 90s Northern California psychedelic rock. Yeah, <laughs> there, was, there was no one doing... You know, that was, we're talking about flannel, you know, at that time, and grunge, or that type of stuff was, was Nirvana. That was that was what's happening at that time. Now, what did you take away from their approach? Because, like I, like I said, my impression is every single sound, every one beat break, every little vocal swell is intentional in the way it's produced and mixed. A hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, the thing that I liked about them is that, you know, it's one thing to sort of emulate the people that influenced you. It's one thing to emulate them, but to do it, in the case of Jellyfish, the songs were solid. I mean, these are songs that those bands could have played. You know, the, the, right. the stuff that's Queen is right up there with Queen songs, you know, in terms of the quality and the songwriting maturity. The Beach Boy stuff is, it's just, you know what I mean? It's just, they managed to, 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 to make really good songs too. And that's the thing that impressed me the most. I mean, you could study it and get the textures and, and work out the, the technical things that are happening and the harmonies and the sounds, and you could do that intellectually. But the songs, the songs were, were the thing that, that impressed me the most. Anything about the way that they made the guitar fit into the mixes or the guitars like minimalist in a way? Kind of like Beatles, yeah. like stabs here and there, or sometimes there's a part, sometimes there's not. You want take away anything from that? Yeah, just as, it's just the way that the 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 instrumentation fits within the writing, and it's just built in. It's just built into it. You know, it's uh, part and parcel. You know. Well, I got to meet Roger Manning one time at LAX. Just ran into him because we had a mutual friend. One of those things. I'm but. sure it was very pleasant because he's a a, a super dude. We we played in Beck's band together. Oh, cool. So we we've spent a lot of time together post Jellyfish, and have done. That's that. Roger's on the Get Him of the Greek soundtrack. Uh, so yeah, I, nice. I bring in Roger. I brought in Roger to several projects, you know, throughout the years, and we've kept in touch. And I I love him. You know, he's just a a, a great guy, uh, amongst being an incredible talent. Well, Lyle, man, I know you got some uh, arrangements to put together. I should probably let you go. But I know you're a film buff. Can you tell us what are your top three movies of all time? Or just throw some movies out that you really love. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. I mean, for me, I'm thinking like I like everything from Wizard of Oz to Pulp Fiction probably in that top five. Yeah. You know, it's it's there's, uh, you know, uh, gosh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to yeah. uh, Being There with Peter Sellers. You know, uh, there's got to be a Kubrick one in there. You know, uh, definitely. Um, Doctor Strange Love. Absolutely. Um, you know, I just watched 2001 Space Odyssey on the plane. Again. Oh, yeah. That's a mind blower. Very him. Yeah, yeah. Especially the significance of that time. I mean, geez. But there's right. a lot. You know, a, a The Unforgiven, I think, is a, one of the greatest Westerns ever. You know, yeah. Uh, 
great westerns, and then you know, in every decade, there's there's always some great great films. Um, but yeah, that I can go on and on. Well, I appreciate it. So I uh, like comedies, Blazing Saddles. That's my favorite comedy of all time. I know that's a true masterpiece. It really is because there's no fluff in it. I I went to, I went to a. It was a talk that Mel Brooks gave about uh, Blazing Saddles. So it was a lecture, and then they showed the movie. And it was so great to hear all these inst- all these stories about it and the casting and the characters. And it, w- it was actually a meet and greet. I'd, I'd paid the extra dough to get a- to have a chance to get a picture with him and shake his hand. That's killer. That's a pretty, well, f- pretty funny picture seeing us standing next to each other. Actually, I went with Mark Benilla. Cool. And so I got this picture of us because uh, he's, a, he's a very dear friend of mine and super talented dude. Have you ever has, – has he been on your show? He has. Oh, yeah. right on. So he's 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 just a, an inspirational dude. Yeah, yeah. We, we hung out, and then we went to the Spawn Ranch. I was telling you. that. He, he told me, yes. You went to the, the, the uh, Spawn Ranch. Which, that's the Manson Ranch for the people Manson who Ranch, yeah. might be yeah. listening for the first time. <laughs> yeah, so he talked – yeah, we talked about it briefly, yeah. So, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he sounds like this. Yeah, talk about yeah. a film buff, yeah. <clears throat> hey, Lyle Workman, this is Mark. How's it going today? Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I don't know. Well, right on. I hope you uh, keep it alive till you're 105. Me too. Doing this stuff. And uh, I really appreciate you and for doing this. And again, yeah, when the record's going to come out, we'll we'll do a little guitar playing and uh, and do a little preview. Yeah. That. Again, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today out of your schedule. Oh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. And, and I would love to... You know, get more in depth about uh, about my rec- my record and my playing, particularly. You know, yeah. uh, if if uh, that still works for you later on down the yeah, road. Yeah. I thought you were going to say if the world is still in existence uh, in six months, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. I think we're in a situation where you know things are going to get worse before they get better. Unfortunately, but well, you know, we're all in this together, and that's the road. thing that really hits me. Hits, hits some of it. Doesn't matter if you're sitting in a shack. You know, if you're homeless or if you're in a, a mansion, we're all in the same the situation with, with this virus, and it, 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 we all have to be remember that we're just one we're one race, and uh, yeah. let's just let's just be there for each other and and just live our lives with with love and benevolence. Well said, man, and I, I think you've done that your whole life, so I appreciate that about you quite a bit. Whoa, the time is safe.